What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thank you very much. And hello, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson. In today for Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. One of our guests says the consumer isn't as strong as the data suggest. The other is feeling like a hopeful Cubs fan in reverse. Both are here to explain what they mean and what it means for the Fed and the markets. Plus, how is the world's second largest asset manager managing in this market? Vanguard CEO Tim Buckley will join us for a live and exclusive interview to answer that question. Plus, a read on housing from one of the builders. The CEO of TriPoint Homes joins us with a look at inventory, home prices, and the impact of rising interest rates. Quick check on the markets now. The Dow down uh, more than 200 points, hovering near session lows. It has been a rough week. The S&P is flat, but the Nasdaq, the outperformer today, bouncing back from yesterday's rough session by about 88 points, as you see there. Amazon, the big tech gainer, shares there up nearly 8% on the back of earnings, and we'll have more on that ahead. That is helping the rest of the tech trade, Microsoft, Meta, Apple, they're all higher as well. Apple on deck, of course, to report next week, and everybody watches that one. But let's begin with the latest read on the economy, and Steve Leisman, we've had a lot of data this week, Steve. Yeah, it's been a good one, uh, Tyler, if you're an economics reporter, even if you like the economy here, because it was a week of mostly stronger growth, growth that tended to exceed estimates and the prior readings, with inflation, however, remaining sticky. But curiously, Fed rate hikes are now less in play, as I'll show you in, in a second, on the expectation that the robust economic readings won't last. Core PCE prices we got this morning, higher than the prior reading, in line with estimates. Personal income, a little bit, a little light relative to the estimates and below the prior month. But consumer spending beating the estimates with a persistent theme here of stronger of a stronger consumer than most forecasts. Real GDP, we learned, accelerated to the upside sharply from the second quarter and came in above estimates that had already, by the way, been revised higher. And this durables number is interesting. It was higher than the prior, higher than the estimates, with some rebound in business investment which had been weak in the GDP report. All of this seemed to cement the market's expectation for no change in the funds rate at next week's meeting, with an expectation that both growth and inflation cool from here. November at zero, December just 19%, January just 29%. And the market still banking on cuts by mid-year 2024. Modest probabilities in May, but then it starts to accelerate June and July, where they think the Fed's going to be cutting. Growth is expected to cool in the current quarter. That's Q4. But now, not as much as expected because of the momentum. Goldman Sachs raising its Q4 forecast today to 1.6 from 0.7, in part because of that momentum from the consumer carried from the third into the fourth quarter. And now the Atlanta Fed just moments ago releasing its initial take on Q4 growth at 2.3. So a slowdown, but still above potential. And Tyler, as you know, 
we need to pay maybe closer attention to the Atlanta Fed GDP report than we had been pre previously. Well, based on what came in earlier this week, I guess that would be the uh, that would be the uh, the takeaway yeah. there. All right, Steve, you're going to stick around for just a minute, and we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the data and the real story on spending, growth, and more. Here with me, Stephen Stanley, chief U.S. economist at Santander, and Barry Knapp, director of research at Ironsides Macroeconomics. Barry, it's good to have you in the house and not from your house out in the mountains. But it's nice to be in the mountains as well. Stephen, let me start with you. If I were to sum up uh, how I read my notes from you, it is this. Growth is growing, inflation is slowing, but the slowing may be slowing in inflation. Yes, that's you got it exactly I right. I got it. I don't know if anyone else could follow that, but All yes. Right. I got, got it. it. I so it. <laughs> you like the, the growth profile that you're seeing. Yes. And I, even I, more than you did yesterday. A little bit, yeah, because the September data was stronger than expected. So Steve suggested that leaves you with a little bit more momentum coming into the fourth quarter. So I, I think we could see something close to 2% growth uh, again in the fourth quarter, which is not obviously not five, but it's still pretty healthy. And there's the 2.3% there's the prediction from the Atlanta Fed. So that's kind of in line with that. Yeah. Barry, you have a slightly more cautious take. And I think if I were to bear down, you see some concerns in commercial real estate, right? Correct. Correct. Among <laughs> other areas that you see as potentially, quote, systemic risks. Yeah, more broadly, I've been characterizing the situation in the U.S. economy as an unstable equilibrium. So we know uh, the dynamic around the household sector, which is largely termed out its debt, the effective mortgage rate of 3.6 percent. So in aggregate, households are in reasonable shape. Uh, non large non-financial corporate sector is similarly positioned again you know, long duration debt. But the deep inversion of the yield curve, which the only precedents are 73, 79, and 80, uh, created a, a very unstable situation in the small banking sector. You could look at the performance of bank stocks after last week's earnings results for some further evidence of that, which is going to translate into a real problem in multifamily real estate. I'm less concerned about office space, but Multifamily real estate, we have a Apartment million Apartment buildings, townhouses. Correct. We have a million right. units under construction that were initially, uh, you know, financed by construction loans. Those will need to be refinanced into multifamily loans with the base rate up 500 basis points or 5% and rental growth having slowed from 15% down to zero. There's also obviously a big problem with the banking system financing government, the federal government as evidenced by the big move in longer term rates over the last couple of months and small businesses in general that f finance themselves through floating rate loans again through the small banking sector. So that's the piece that's unstable and strong data is just exacerbating that by you know, put, putting or pushing out the point when the Fed will start to reverse. Stephen, you want to react? No, I, I think there's definitely, um, you know, this is all part of the process of the Fed trying to get financial conditions tighter. And there are going to be winners and losers in that process. So um, it shouldn't be surprising that we're seeing some cracks in the system. And in fact, I mean, you think about the fact that um, economists have been calling for a recession since the beginning of the year, and we haven't seen it yet. So um, I think it, the economy eventually will slow, but so far it's proven certainly more resilient. Steve, jump in. I just was thinking about what a lousy business we're all in here, Tyler, where you get 4.9% growth and all you can do is worry about it growing too much and 0.7% consumer spending and everybody's worried about can the consumer give it up? Do we ever get to spend a minute to just enjoy the data when it comes in strong? So 
I'm going to spend that minute, just a second, and just say, look, uh, picking up on exactly what Stephen Stanley has said, two things. One is that we've continued to surprise to the upside. Things have been working out, and I think the biggest problem people are having is understanding uh, what Barry calls the unstable equilibrium comes to me directly from uh, uh, getting back where we were from the pandemic. And I think we're still putting that equilibrium back together. I think that's one thing. The other thing is when Stephen Stanley says 2%, and even when Goldman says 1.6 and Atlanta Fed says GDP at 2.3, that remains an economy operating at potential. And it remains an economy operating at potential. And we did 4.9 in the third quarter, and inflation still came down. So the Fed seems to have this uh, dynamic perhaps wrong in the sense that it seems like we can still be beating inf inflation with relatively strong growth at potential. So that's a Maybe something good to think about going into the weekend? Barry, Barry, I see you nodding a little bit over there. Yeah, I, I think that the Fed has had the inflation profile all wrong throughout this entire process. We obviously all know they about missed the, the early part. Piece, yep. But even on the, de the um, disinflation element to it, uh, uh, you know, go back to Powell's November speech a year ago at Brookings where he said we're really worried about super core services and then start looking at the wage growth in areas like education and healthcare, which are decelerating much more quickly than on average. Service sector wages are coming down faster than manufacturing sector wages. So I'm not sure why the Fed gave up on that disinflationary trend. I get what Stephen's saying. It was always going to stall out at mid-year from a headline perspective. But we are having a pretty good trend in disinflation and that the framework that they've created where they want slower growth, they want slower consumption in order to get inflation to go down and stay down, to me, misreads what happened in the 60s and 70s is misreading what's happening now. And it's totally unnecessary. And it risks that unstable part of the economy I'm talking about becoming systemic. You know, the, the inability to roll these loans multifamily real estate loans and, and systemic otherwise. leads to bad places well, right? and this, mean, is, this is it when you watch <laughs> the, the back end of the, the treasury market sell off like it has i i hate to invoke 87 but i was a young man in the business and remember it distinctly but certainly 2018 the similar things happened during the early stages of qt and that you can't have instability in the back end of the treasury market and not expect it to reverberate well, let me let classes. me drill down there. I mean, in part of your notes, I read this phrase and it made me sit up uh, and take take note. This is a mistake. The Fed has made, made forecasting mistakes during the inflationary surge and the disinflation trend. In other words, the probability of nonlinear tightening of financial conditions, Fed speak for market crash continues to grow. Right. Is that what you're seeing? Well, the possibility, I, 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 the the possibility of a crash? The, is, the probability of the stock market decline, which is now 10%, accelerating 10%. into something that causes, you know, the VIX to go to 40 is is increasing at a at a pretty significant rate. Because Be, because we we have this instability in the most important price in the global capital market system, which is the back end of the treasury market, 10-year treasuries, 30-year treasuries. If you look at the Bloomberg liquidity index, it's back out at highs it was at during the dash for cash part of the pandemic, March of 2020, where it was after Silicon Valley Bank mm -hmm. went mm -hmm. down and mortgage spreads are widening. All these things are crucial prices to how the system works. So it's- Stephen, take him on. 
Well, I think the, uh, the, the, the issue for me, I mean, you know, you're focused on the markets, I'm focused on the economy. And as you said, I mean, a lot of uh, borrowers were, came into this period flush. Households had their mortgages locked in. They had excess cash on their balance sheet. Same thing for a lot of corporations. And so the pain that comes with tighter monetary policy maybe isn't kicking in quite as, as suddenly as it might in a different economic environment. Right. But it will on some on businesses. It will on banks. It will in lots well, of places. Well, that's right. And, and I think that the, um, the municipal the, the, the finance, Fed, the Fed is missing that part of the banking story to say to talk to Brian Moynihan or Jamie Dimon, who can manage that risk, but didn't actually take in all the deposits during 2021 because of regulatory policy that capped mm -hmm. the deposits they could take. And then you just think about how smaller businesses operate, right? They yep. just take in cheap deposits and lend it long, and they have massive losses on the 30% of their portfolio invested in securities. They may not have to realize those, but they're real, and credit is tightening. And so yep. credit tends to tighten slowly until it becomes nonlinear. And so that's my, right. that's my underarching or overarching fear, and the markets are giving lots of indications that we could have something more severe before this is all said and done. Two, two Steves and a Barry, we thank you. Gentlemen, appreciate it. Have a good weekend. All right, shares of Amazon up 7% and turning positive for the month after the company reported better than expected revenue and income and said it is seeing momentum in its cloud unit, AWS. Dieter Boza has more in today's Tech Check. Hi, D. Hey, Tyler. So I really like the way that Bernstein laid it out this morning. They wrote that AWS, Operating Income, and Timu, you need answers to all three. We got an answer to one, one is on the way, and one is still a question. So the one that we already have is Operating Income. This is about as profitable of an Amazon as we have seen, beating expectations on the profitability front and providing a very strong outlook for the holiday quarter ahead. Now, the second piece of this, AWS, still kind of an open question. As you mentioned, Tyler, there is momentum there, but that still needs to be answered, and we'll see this quarter how it performs, especially next to Microsoft, which reported better numbers out of its cloud unit. Now, the third one, the open question, Timu, that refers to a broader competitive threat to Amazon's core, and that is still an open question. As the company said, consumers are trading down, so Pinduoduo owned Timu. That is the company that is gaining a lot of popularity here among American consumers, and it offers basement bargain prices. So, so far, it's really been seen as more of a threat to the dollar stores. But if it does start to take some share away from Amazon, that could ultimately threaten Amazon's holy grail. That is the prime flywheel. It could take away advertising dollars, even third-party sellers. Um, services, which were both very strong points in the latest quarter. So that's something that we'll track very closely as we get into the holiday shopping season, guys. And make sure if you haven't checked out our check out our Tech Check Weekly, we did deep dive into the Timu effect and how it could have, how it could impact Amazon. How worried are analysts about that Timu effect as you read it? <laughs> um, I would say quite interested. I don't know if they're worried. Mm -hmm. um, it runs the gambit, but they are all writing about the Timu effect to different degrees. Some say that it could be the Amazon killer. Some say, no, 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 that prime ecosystem makes Amazon very different from anything else. You don't go to Amazon just for the shopping. You stream videos. You maybe get your groceries. They have an advertising model. So that very much varies. But one thing I will say, Tyler, is that 
everyone on the street is writing about it. All right, Deirdre, thanks very much. Deirdre Bosa reporting on Amazon. And coming up, mortgage rates are rising, and uh, that's hitting home builder margins. So how are they adjusting to this new normal, and what does it take to incentivize home buyers nowadays? Up next, we'll ask the CEO of TriPoint Homes on the heels of their results. Plus, Chevron is the biggest drag on the Dow after missing estimates on the bottom line, falling to its lowest level now in over a year. We're going to look into what's driving the decline with crude prices on pace to post their first negative week in three. Uh, Stocks at session lows. The the exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of TriPoint Homes down more than 2% today, despite posting strong third-quarter earnings results last night. The home construction company reported a beat on both the top and bottom lines, surpassing delivery guidance and posting a record low debt-to-capital ratio of 32%. Still, TriPoint saw a 22% decline in year-over-year home sales revenue, with new home deliveries also falling 16% from the same time last year. For more here, we're joined by TriPoint Homes CEO Doug Bauer. Doug, welcome. Good to see you. Some of the numbers very nice, beating expectations. Others of the numbers a slowdown from last year. I suppose no one should be really terribly surprised at that, should they? No. Um, Tyler, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, as you pointed out, we had a, a strong beat across the board. Um, and even with increasing rate trends that we've seen, we had solid absorption. Uh, when we measure absorption, and we look at sales per committee per month, and, and our number was 3.3 in, in Q3, which is very good. And we also have a really strong setup for the fourth quarter as we finish the year, uh, 86% of our backlog is locked in with our mortgage uh, affiliate at 6.6%. So it's a very solid quarter, very solid uh, year that's set up uh, for us. So uh, I'm, I'm very uh, bullish uh, on this year, and, and I'm very uh, positive about going into 24. For, for those of us like mm-hmm. yours truly who don't understand some of the numbers like absorption, you just yeah. cited a 3.3 number uh, on absorption as being very good. What does that mean? I don't under- I don't know. I'm educated. Typically, the industry, depending on your price point, uh, you you want to sell for each community anywhere from three to four homes per month 
uh, per community. Uh, so think of it that way. Uh, 3.3 is a very healthy rate. We plan our business around 3.25 to 3.5. Um, so it's a, it's a very healthy rate, despite uh, the increasing rate environment that we've seen. I guess what strikes me about uh, folks who are in your business is this. The, the interest rate environment affects housing affordability. But when you get to the bottom of it, there is a shortage of housing in the United States. Uh, inventory is low because owners of existing homes aren't putting their homes on the market. So who's going who's gonna to serve the need of the housing shortage? It's builders of new homes like you. You're the swing player here, right? Tyler, you hit the nail on the head. Um, if, I, if I could throw a, a proposition to you, if, if you could be the CEO of TriPoint, and I just told you that your main competitor, which is the resale market, is, uh, is, is not producing or selling about a million to two million homes per year, that translates into a, a greater market share, greater top and bottom line growth. And that's exactly what's happening. In addition to what you were saying, there's been a shortage of housing built since the great financial crisis. It's millions of units, depending on who you want to talk to. So the new home builders are well positioned to provide product to the millennials, the Gen Zs that are, are really entering their prime home buying years. And, and, and as you point out, some of those uh, Gen Z folks are buying homes at a younger age even than the millennials. Let me ask you one thing here that did, that did leap out to me. If indeed new home builders are the swing player here, new home deliveries 1,223 compared with 1,463, a decrease of 16%. I think that's year over year compar mm -hmm. comparatively. Why are those new home deliveries lower if, in fact, the new home builders should be getting a, a bit of a boost from the fact that they're kind of the, the, the swing player in the market. Well, orders, I believe, were about 122% above last year. You're comparing deliveries. And what happened the last year, uh, the Fed increased rates, as you know, seven times. So the consumer paused for about six to eight months but then re-engage as we, we got mm -hmm. into 2023. So that comparison to 22, uh, we're, we're pretty much blown. All the builders are blowing that uh, out of the water when it comes to orders. And it provides a really strong setup for 2024. Yeah, orders are up a lot. Uh, 15, 13 compared with 681, uh, increase of 122%. You think you will deliver in Q4 between 1,600 and 1,800 homes at an average sale price of 670, 680. That's down a little bit from prior years. Why is the price going down, the price point going down? Is that because you're having to to do things to get people to help to help with uh, with the higher interest rates to come to counteract the higher interest rates? I'm sorry, I stumbled there. No, no, no. It's 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 a good question. Uh, it's really due to mix. Uh, mm -hmm. As we've grown our business in the central markets, uh, our community count has has diversified into the, the Texas and the East Coast markets. We're building more what I call premium entry level first move up. So it's it's more of a mix. Um, at the end of the third quarter, our incentives were only 3.8%, and only 2% of that was going to closing costs and financing. <clears throat> so as you look 
at those numbers, uh, that's kind of how it stacks up. Yeah. And builders have, have, have an, it would appear to me, over the existing home seller, you would have advantages because there are things you can do. You have a mortgage unit. Uh, there are things you can do with buy-downs and so forth to, to, to get the sale done, right, quickly? For, for sure. And in, in, in the third quarter, 87% uh, of our buyers had a permanent rate buy-down with our, our mortgage affiliate. But to your point, and, and and this this rate trade or this rate concern, um, rates don't drive demand. Demand in housing is driven by household formations, jobs. We just reported strong job growth in September. What I think it was 336,000 jobs. So the home builders have all the tools in their tool chest to continue to move product. And with the lack of competition in the resale market, we have the ability to offer uh, temporary, permanent buy-downs, right. other incentives. And these incentives have been around the industry for years. All right. Doug uh, Bauer, thanks very much. Doug uh, with TriPoint Homes, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tyler. You got it. All right, coming up, what does the head of the world's second largest asset manager think about the age-old active versus passive investing debate? We've got a rare and exclusive interview with the CEO of Vanguard, the world's largest mutual fund and ETF company. And as we head to break, stocks near session lows. The Dow falling as much as 326 points right now, down about 285. In terms of sectors, energy, the worst performer, consumer discretionary and tech, the only two groups in the green right now. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. We've got a big day going in the market right now. Welcome back to The Exchange. There you see at the Dow, down about 298 points right now, low of 327 to the downside. At its high, it was up a big three points. Let's take a closer look at the Dow, which is approaching a so-called death cross. That is when the 50-day moving average, uh, the white line there, uh, moves below the 200-day moving average. The orange line and is seen as a it sounds like a subway line and is seen as a potentially bearish signal for the market. The last time the Dow showed its death cross technical pattern was in March of 2022. On the other hand, uh, Bitcoin's recent rally, rally has the cryptocurrency approaching a so-called golden cross, not to be confused with the golden bachelor. Uh, that is when the 50 day crosses above an ascending 200 day moving average. But enough about golden bachelors and golden crosses and technicals. Take a look at the shares of the big three automakers. Ford, worst day in more than a year after missing earnings estimate and saying that demand for its electric vehicles was falling short of expectations. Ford remains the only automaker, of course, now to have reached a tentative agreement with the UAW. Those sources say GM is nearing a labor deal with the union. Let's go over to Pippa Stevens now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Tyler. Well, Israel opened the world's largest underground fortified hospital. 
Less than 20 miles from Israel's border with Lebanon, the new hospital is ready for patients if the area is attacked. The space was used as a parking lot with three subterranean floors, but was converted to a trauma center after exchanges of rocket fire started on the border. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with China's top diplomat Wang Yi this morning. The diplomat is expected to meet with a U.S. national security advisor and with President Biden during his three-day trip. The visit is the latest in a series of diplomatic exchanges between the U.S. and China leading up to the Xi-Biden summit in November. And OpenAI, the parent company of ChatGPT, is forming a new term to study what it calls the potentially catastrophic risks of the technology. The company says the newly formed preparedness team will track, forecast, and even try to protect against some of the major issues caused by AI. As part of the team's work, OpenAI is asking people to send ideas on ways AI can be misused for it to study. Tyler, All right. back to you. Pippa, thank you very much. Coming up, Exxon and Chevron both moving lower after missing earnings estimates, uh, at least one way or another. Up next, we will look at how long until their recent multi-billion dollar acquisitions uh, start to make a difference on their bottom lines. And before we head to break, let's get some show and tell in here where we show you a chart and then tell the story. Shares of Intel surging 9% after the chipmaker's earnings beat showed progress toward its goal of $3 billion in cost savings for the year. But remember, earlier this week, Intel had its worst session in a month on a report that NVIDIA and AMD are working on ARM-based PC chips, or ARM-based PC chips. Here's what Intel's CEO Pat Gelsinger told CNBC last night about that competition. ARM-based clients have always been low-end, low-margin products. They've never really made that much of a difference in the PC marketplace uh, overall. So we feel like, you know, if we execute well around the x86 ecosystem, you know, that we have so much ecosystem momentum to benefit from that we're going to do well. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. ExxonMobil and Chevron reporting mixed results for the third quarter, a quarter where crude jumped nearly 29 percent. ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods addressing margins on Squawk Box this morning. Supply continues to remain fairly tight, and so you're going to see margins and prices move pretty uh, dramatically with changes in demand. So as demand settles down, we see the margins and prices come off. If demand uh, spikes back up again or begins to rise, there's not a whole lot of uh, additional capacity response. So we're gonna see margins and prices move. All right, for more on the results and how to trade the stocks, let's bring in Neil Dingman. He's energy analyst at Truist Securities. Neil, welcome. Good to have you with us. Uh, these two Thanks, companies Neil. have been very busy uh, and, in the, uh, and very acquisitive in the past couple of weeks. Why don't we take apart each of their uh, respective earnings reports, starting with Chevron? I, I You know, again, I, I think both were a bit, you know, I call both a bit sloppy. Um, you look, both missed on earnings expectations for mine in the street. Uh, CapEx even was a little hotter on the on, on Exxon side. So it, it's it's not, you know, I, I call it still on the Exxon side a good quarter. It's not the great quarter that we're used to uh, for both of these. And, you know, again, I probably wouldn't push on the upstream side. It, for both, it was kind of the chemicals um, downstream. There was just some downtime, a lot of different, you know, again, just kind of a sloppy quarter, but a bit sloppier than what I was expecting. And when you say sloppy, you mean some parts of the business performed as expected and other parts didn't. 
basically, right? That, that, that's right. I mean, to me, I still look and look. The, the main driver for both is the upstream. It's the production business. Uh, they both just did some interesting acquisitions. I tend to like Exxon's much more than, than, than Chevron's. We can get into that. But but again, the primary business I still think is going very, very well. Uh, and as you see prices potentially go up, both have no hedges. They're going to continue to, uh, you know, obviously yeah. benefit from that. But I think in the near term, you always had different sort of things offline. And we just saw a bit more of that in this last quarter than, than I think any of us were expecting. You anticipated my next question beautifully there, Neil. Uh, who, uh, the, both, both companies have done acquisitions in the past couple of weeks. Who did the better deal at the better price? We, we, we like Exxon's much better. We think that the Pioneer, uh, put it this way, Charlie, I think both are going to be a bit dilutive, you know, let's call it for even potentially the next 12 months. But I just think that Exxon bought probably the premier assets that are out there in the U.S. They bought it for a very reasonable price. And I think you're going to see a big, big uh, upside on that beginning somewhere around, I'll, I'll be cautious and say 2025. Whereas, again, if you look at Chevron's deal, I don't mind I don't mind Hess. But what's interesting is what you're buying with Hess is you're essentially buying a, a non-op play of Guiana where your competitor, Exxon, is your is is your operator. So mm -hmm, my, mm -hmm. my point is Chevron basically is buying an asset and saying, all right, Exxon, you're going to be running one of our biggest assets for us going forward. So it was kind of an odd acquisition, in my yeah. opinion. But but you get the toy trucks thrown in, the Hess toy trucks. <laughs> I mean, I, you do like those. You that works a lot. So let's talk <laughs> about more broadly uh, ongoing consolidation in this area. Who will the buyers be? Everybody seems to say there's going to be more consolidation. I'll take them at the word. Uh, who are the buyers going to be and who are the likely targets? I, I think the buyers will continue to be the majors. They, even though you could say both have now over 15 years running room, they always want more. I think you have a lot of the large independents. Uh, you know, you have names like uh, EOG out there. You have mm -hmm. uh, Oxy out there. You have just a lot, a, a host of large independents that, you know, potentially would like to get bigger and add more inventory. And then as far as sellers, um, you know, we've said before, I think, number one, there's a host of very interesting private companies, particularly in the mid in the Midland Basin, which I think is very interesting. interesting. And, then, and then number two, we think there's a host of publics, Permian Resources, Cord, Magnolia, I think we mentioned last time on your show, uh, all three in different plays, but we think all three of those could be very, very interesting targets because they all have very, very good inventory. Neil? Couldn't have asked for more. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend, sir. You too. Thanks, Tyler. Neil Dingman with The Truest. Still ahead, the Journal declaring last year the, quote, worst year in generations for the 60-40 portfolio strategy. But don't count it out just yet, says Vanguard CEO Tim Buckley. He'll join us for an exclusive interview from Vanguard's headquarters down in Malvern, PA. That's next. And CNBC's Evolve Global Summit is less than a week away. I will be there bringing leaders and innovators from around the world together to share the strategies necessary for adapting and innovating in this new era of business. You can scan the QR code on your screen to register or visit cnbcevents.com slash evolve. We'll leave that uh, little QR code up there for just a couple more seconds. Come and join us next week.
Welcome back, everybody. We are now just five days away from the Fed's rate decision. On Wednesday, Powell and company have hiked rates 11 times uh, since March of just last year. And that historic pace has pressured the traditional 60-40 portfolio, with the uh, Wall Street Journal reporting that that strategy lost 17% last year. It was a bad year for stocks. It was a bad year for bonds. It was the worst performance, in fact, for that model since 1937. So, with another chance of a hike next week, should investors ditch tradition and move away from the 60-40 mix? To discuss that and more, let's bring in Vanguard CEO Tim Buckley along with Bob Pisani from Vanguard's headquarters to discuss. Hi, Bob. Tyler, great to see you. I am on the right on the trading desk. Vanguard has revamped its trading desk. It's beautiful. It's sleek. It's modern. We're in Malvern, Pennsylvania, and we're talking with the man in charge. Tim Buckley is the CEO of Vanguard. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us today. You've been. Pleasure really, to have you here. Really appreciate it. So I, I think the problem right now is investors are really confused. They're confused about the state of the economy. They're confused about should they stay in their 5% 10-year treasuries and clip coupons and stay out of the stock market? Should they go back into the stock market? What is Vanguard telling their investors right now? Bob, boring is successful. Stay the course. You probably knew I'd say that, but every environment has its temptations. Believe it or not. Believe it or not, right now it's cash. So we live in a 5% world. If you ask us 10-year outlook on stocks, around 5% for U.S. stocks a year for the next 10 years. Bonds, you know, you're looking around 5%. So people look at cash and they say, well, I'm making a little more than 5% there. Why don't I just go to cash? The problem with that is we're now talking about something new to most investors, something you and I talked about in the 90s would be income risk. The fact that you can be getting a 5.3% yield but suddenly the Fed starts cutting rates. And you got to know you have to know that perfectly. If you're in cash, bonds will have moved away from you, stocks will have moved away from you. Stay the course. It gets nice you're getting paid for your for your liquidity. Just enjoy that. Don't double Based down. Based on, on my it. emails, the viewers are loving their 5% treasuries and don't seem very interested in stocks. And yet we talk about a 60-40 split that Tyler was mentioning there. Is that gone away? That still makes sense, doesn't it? Do we want everyone suddenly sitting in treasuries? The fundamentals of investing, Bob, have not changed. Like bonds are great for ballast. Right, you've, got this, you've got this set income stream. You've got senior claims on assets. But you need the equities for growth. We always say that's the wind in your sails, propelling you for forward. So as companies grow, you actually get to benefit from that earnings growth. And trying to time that, that's a fool's errand. It's one of the fundamental principles on which Vanguard is founded. Jack Bogle said from the beginning, I met him in 1997, he said market timing doesn't work. I want to hear more about why your risk profile needs, you need to understand your risk profile, why going forward you need to stay invested long term that's what Vanguard's been doing for years and years. Is that's, that Can you get that message out consistently? Because people seem a little concerned. They seem a little panicky. Well, we don't see that with our investors. They stay the course. Very few actually transact and move away in their portfolio. That doesn't mean that they're, they're concerned, but they, they stay the course yeah. and the benefit over the long run. If you look at uh, target retirement funds, 20 years, we're finding that millennials who have started in their 401ks with those are actually outperforming their parents. They have always had that 60-40 portfolio. My, my colleague, Tyler Matheson, has got a question for you. Tyler. Tim, Tim, good afternoon. Good to see you. I I'm curious about, you're, you're one of, and probably the largest uh, seller of ETFs, uh, and there's been a lot of discussion yes. over the past few weeks about uh, potentially a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency ETFs. Are you exploring it? Do you plan to open one? Are you going to apply to open one? And what do you think of a Bitcoin ETF as an investment tool for your customers? 
Tyler, we won't be pursuing a Bitcoin ETF. Um, it, just like we don't uh, use gold as an asset class for our clients. So we have, it's not that people can't invest in there. We just look at asset classes for you know, what belongs in a long-term portfolio, what has intrinsic value, has cash flows to it. And those are the asset classes we steer people towards. And so we don't go towards Bitcoin or gold or, or any other of those uh, stable assets. Baby boomers need financial advice right now, and not just what kind of stock picks or um, mutual funds I should own. You've gotten into the advice business, 30 basis points now. You can hire Vanguard for it. That just started a couple of years ago. It's sort of a new business line for you. How, how is that going, and what are you finding people want to know about? It is, for us, it's been a booming business. Full financial planning for 30 basis points, digital for 15 basis points. And for us, it's uh, client success is determined by the funds they hold and the advice that they get on those funds. We've been working on that fund side. Can we lower the, the cost of investing and let you keep more of your turn? Now we're doing it on the advice side. Full financial planning, 30 basis points, all in advice for less than an active fund would cost you. Vanguard manages $7.8 trillion. It is hard to get your head around that. I tell people, give you an idea, the U.S. government spent $6 trillion last year. That was the budget of the United States, $6 trillion, and you manage $7.8 trillion. It's a staggering responsibility. It's an awful lot of new people coming in to Vanguard over the years. There's been complaints about the service level. I know you're trying to address that. Can you tell us what, what you're doing to make sure the service is at the level Vanguard, is, Vanguard investors are expecting? You bet. First of all, the $7.8 trillion, that's the money of our 50 million clients. So we always want to make sure that it's their money, and we, they deserve the best service. They are our owners, so we serve them. And a few years ago, we looked at our service and said, hey, we're going to make a big jump here, and we are going to totally modernize our digital experience. And 92% of our digital experience now has been modernized. That's just not just the look and feel and the flow. That's back end now cloud native, super available. We're pretty close to five nines availability. Client satisfaction scores have jumped 70% since a couple of years ago when some of those concerns were coming in. Low cost investing, that's what the whole company was, was, was founded on 50 years ago. Active investing's coming back, but you're still doing it low cost in a way. What would you tell people to do right now who are concerned long-term? Can, do you know, is Vanguard successful at educating people on the long-term investment principles the company was, was bound on? Frankly, we're in an era where a lot of people can make trades and bet on sports as easy as it is to bet on stocks at this point. It's a, it's a tough environment to teach fundamentals of investing and behavioral economics right now. Bob, I think when people come to Vanguard, they've usually learned a lesson somewhere else about that market timing, trading meme stocks doesn't always work for their long-term retirement. And so they come to Vanguard and realize that, hey, that buy and hold strategy, keeping more of your turn, keeping costs low, staying diversified, staying tax efficient, that's a winning game plan for the long run. Tim Buckley, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. And thanks for having us on your beautiful trading floor. It's, it's, it, it's almost the size of a city block. Uh, Tyler, it's amazing. There's literally hundreds of people here, who, and it's a Friday, and everybody's here at work. The whole team, at least the trading desk, is here. No three days a week for the trading desk, the hardworking guys and women that are here behind me. I have to say, I'm a little surprised that Vanguard even has a trading desk, because you're known for not trading very much, right? <laughs> I mean, you're classic buy and holders. 
Go ahead, Tyler. Tim. They still have to re rebalance the funds and, and take in the cash flow. And so uh, they stay busy. They've got to make sure they run the best ETFs, the, re the best index funds uh, on this planet. All right, it's a beautiful thanks. campus, Tyler. I think you've been here before. Thanks yeah. for having us thanks. there again. Thanks, thanks gentlemen. Tim. Appreciate it. Tim Buckley, Bob Pisani. All right, coming up, muni bonds now sitting at 15-year highs as rates continue to climb. And according to one portfolio manager, now is the best time of year to buy those tax-free Munis, where she is seeing opportunities next. Welcome back, everybody. Not just Treasuries sitting at multi-year highs, Muni bonds as well. And after a rough couple of years, buyers are starting to come back in. Next guest says now's the time to add duration to lock in the highest yields since the financial crisis. Joining us now is Nisha Patel, Managing Director of SMA Portfolio Management at Parametric. Nisha, welcome. Good to have you here. Let's start off with the thing that I think is always a very eye-catching thing, and that is the tax equivalent yield for, let's say, uh, an investor who lives in a high-tax state like California, like New York, like New Jersey. What are those yields now on mid- and longer-term duration muni funds? Yes. Uh, so again, as you pointed out, Tyler, we're looking at about 15-year highs almost in that intermediate and long part of the curve. So if we take a look at an A-rated 10-year maturity bond, we're almost looking at a little over 4%, right? So on a taxable equivalent basis, in those high-tax states where that tax bracket is anywhere north of 85 to 9%, that's a taxable equivalent yield of 95 Right. If you're a New York City resident, that is close to about a 10 percent taxable equivalent yield. Once you start extending out to a 15 or 20 year bond where that yield is roughly about four point seven five percent. And, you know, just to reiterate, right, these are high quality bonds. So our from our perspective, that reward from a risk side of things, at least from a credit standpoint, is absolutely incredible and something that we have not seen in, in really decades. What you seem to be suggestion, suggesting as you, as you try to persuade people to go out on the duration curve a little longer is that you think we are getting close to the point where the Fed is done raising interest rates. Am I reading you correctly? That, that's right. And, and look, I, I think, obviously, we, we'd all love to have a crystal ball to see how this all ends up. But I will say this, right, from a macro perspective, I do think we are headed into this period where we will likely see a lot less volatility. And the recent rise in rates that we've seen over the past two months have already priced in, right, and not only, uh, obviously, kind of strong economic data that continues to come out, but even an additional rate hike if the Fed were to keep going right through the end of the year. So we really feel that we are close to being done, whether it is, you know, no more rate hikes or whether there is one more left. And on the flip side of that, we are now starting to see an environment where clients and, and investors really need to start positioning for fixed income to be that diversified mm -hmm. in your portfolio and to hedge for the opposite, right, for, head, for rates to eventually come down as growth eventually slows down, as, as inflation I've, eventually comes down. I've got about 30 seconds left, Nisha. Should I, if I'm persuaded here, should I buy individual securities or should I buy a fund or an ETF? Very quickly. So we highly recommend doing a separately managed account, right? Highly customizable solutions that, uh, from an even pricing standpoint, compete right along 
ETFs and funds, and in fact, may come in even lower. And the biggest advantage here that our clients at Parametric uh, have in our separately managed accounts is the tax loss harvesting yep. overlay, right? So these are extremely right. tax efficient, customized vehicles, and that is how I would recommend taking exposure to mini bonds today. You did it in about 34 seconds. Yeah. Nisha Patel, beautifully done. Parametric Portfolio Management. Thank you. That does it for The Exchange. Power Lunch is next. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 